Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Kareen, and we are two Oc Docs. Today's episode, we're going to be focusing on what you need to know regarding stage one, two, and three colon cancer. This is going to include all the need to know presentations, diagnostic workups, staging, adjuvant treatment, and also surveillance. Yeah, this is very high yield. So let's start with screening. How do we screen for colon cancer? Yeah. So as of 2018, we have moved our screening age from 50 down to 45 in asymptomatic individuals. I say asymptomatic because any patient with symptoms, whether blood in your stools, change in the calperver stools, abdominal pain, need to seek medical attention and get the workup, including maybe a colonoscopy, well before the age of 45. We now have a whole gamut of screening options. We have three stool-based testing for colon cancer. We have the gold standard colonoscopy. We have CT colonography, and we also have flex sigmoidoscopies. And the big reason why we push for screening in colon cancer is because finding precancerous polyps and removing them or removing and treating early colon cancers reduces our risk of dying from colon cancer. So very important, something that we all need to make a big initiative and a push to do. Absolutely. And it's also important to know who's at highest risk for colon cancer. So what are some of the risk factors? Yeah. So the majority of our colon cancer cases are sporadic in nature. But with that being said, some cases are familial, and familial colon cancer is defined as two or more first-degree relatives with colon cancer, and this is about 20% of our colon cancer cases. And even less common, but very high yield and testable, are hereditary syndromes leading to high probabilities of colon cancer. This includes Lynch syndrome, which is hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. This is about 2 to 5% of our colon cancer cases, and this is related to deficiencies in our mismatch repair enzymes. In addition to Lynch syndrome, there's FAP, which is very, very rare at less than 1% of colon cancer cases, and that's identified as being a mutation in the APC gene. So again, not common, but very testable, and you need to know these. Absolutely. And so who should we be testing for these syndromes? Yeah, so for Lynch syndrome, so hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, every single colon cancer patient should be tested. This is in the NCCN guidelines, and you test these patients either through immunohistochemistry staining, and that looks at the mismatch repair enzymes to see if they're proficient or deficient, and it also looks like microsatellite instability and tells us if we have microsatellite instability high, which does indicate more of that Lynch syndrome, or low, which is not Lynch syndrome. So the Lynch syndrome genes are germline mutations in at least one of five genes, and they are MSH6, MSH2, PMS1, MLH1, and PMS2. One pearl that we should think of is if there's only the loss of MLH1 and sometimes PMS2, you need to be checking for BRAF V600He because this can actually be sporadic mismatch repair deficiency, not familial mismatch repair deficiency, and those can correlate with BRAF V600E mutations. Important to note, um, and also patients with Lynch syndrome, they're not only at risk for colon cancer, but they're also at risk for endometrial cancer 
cancer, ovarian cancer, small intestine cancer, and gastric cancers. So we got to identify these patients and start screening them not only for colon, but other cancers. Yeah. And that's very important. You know, they may give you someone with colon cancer at a young age and ultimately ask you what other cancers they're going to be at risk for. Um, So now we're moving on to staging. So this is extremely important. Um, So how do we stage colon cancer? Yep. So stage one colon cancer, we really focus on the T of the TNM staging system. So we all know that T is the size of the tumor. Well, in colon cancer, it's actually the depth of the invasion of that tumor. So how deep is that tumor invading and trying to get out of the colon? So stage one is T1 or T2, which is invading into the submucosa or muscularis propria. No lymph nodes, no metastatic sites. Stage two is T3 to T4, which is invading through the muscularis propria or into the visceral peritoneum. Again, no lymph nodes, no metastatic sites. Stage three is when we enter in lymph nodes. So this is any T-score, but their lymph nodes, it's N1 to 2. So N1 is 1 to 3 lymph nodes involved. N2 is 4 or more lymph nodes involved. No metastatic sites. An important thing when you're thinking about lymph nodes and colon cancer, you need to identify and evaluate a minimum of 12 lymph nodes. 12 lymph nodes. You need to nail that in your head. Other solid tumors have different numbers, but for colon cancer, you have to examine 12 lymph nodes to get an adequate snapshot of how many lymph nodes could be involved. Another parole Remember... Oh, oh, sorry. Go for it. Um, We... Definitely need to remember that number 12. So the magical dozen in um, high-risk stage twos. And so what are some of the high-risk high-risk features for stage two cancers. Yeah. So I think one important thing to note is that some stage twos actually do worse than stage three colon cancers. And this is largely driven by being T4, so that deeper invasion. Other things that can get you the the identification of being high-risk stage two is less than 12 lymph nodes examined, having obstruction or perforation, having lymphovascular invasion, having perineural invasion, or being poorly different differentiated or undifferentiated histology. An important thing to note is that all of this excludes MSI high patients because MSI high are treated very differently and they are not high risk. Yeah, this is, those are extremely important things to remember. And so how do we determine who needs adjuvant therapy? Yeah. So the reason we give adjuvant therapy is really to reduce the risk of recurrence. So the risk of recurrence is highest in colon cancer in the first one to three years from their diagnosis. And we're trying to reduce that risk and prevent distant local recurrences, um, as well as improve overall survival. An important thing to note before we get too far into adjuvant therapy is there is only two chemo drugs approved, explored, looked at in the adjuvant setting for colon cancer, and those are 5-FU, the IV, or its oral counter cousin part, um, which is capecitabine, and oxaliplatin. This is really high yield to note. Do not fall into the trap or the tricks of looking at targeted therapies or immunotherapies or rinitecan in the adjuvant setting because we only use 5-FU, capecitabine, oxaliplatin. Those are the only drugs you need to know in adjuvant in adjuvant colon cancer treatment. 
Yeah. And um, so who do we give adjuvant chemotherapy to? Yeah. So a generalized statement, and we can never make absolutes in medicine, is that for most stage 3 colon cancers, we offer adjuvant therapy. And some stage 2s, we offer adjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah. So I think if you remember anyone with positive lymph nodes probably needs chemo. Definitely. Um, That's one of the good um, things to commit to memory. And so when do we treat stage 2 patients? Yeah. So there was a trial in the Lancet in 2007 that actually looked at um, overall survival comparing observation to 5-FU, and they were similar. So really not all stage 2s benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. I think treating stage 2s is the most controversial and talked about and maybe argued about um, adjuvant chemotherapy um, population in colon cancer. But patients who do benefit that are stage 2 are those those with the high-risk features that we mentioned above. So which stage 2 patients do we not give adjuvant chemotherapy to? The ones we definitely do not give adjuvant chemotherapy to are those who have mismatch repair deficiency. They are generally resistant to 5-FU. And there was a JCO article in 2010 that looked at stage 2s who were mismatch repair deficient and they were treated with 5-FU and they actually did worse in their 5-year overall survival. So one thing I can say is we definitely do not treat mismatch repair deficiency patients with adjuvant chemo in the stage two setting. And then has anyone compared 5-FU alone to Fulfox in high-risk stage two and stage three? Yeah, definitely. So one thing before we jump into 5-FU or 5-FU with oxaloplatin is we need to know that capecitabine is equivalent to 5-FU, so they are really interchangeable. So Kpox and Fulfox, they're interchangeable. The XAC trial proved that non-inferiority and maybe even had a trend towards superiority of capecitabine. There's another trial in the JCO in 2011 that looked at Kpox versus 5-FU in stage 3s, um, and they compared it to bolus 5-FU, and what they saw is superior disease-free survival with Kpox. So again, maybe capecitabine is a little better than 5-FU, but you can use either of them interchangeably. They're not inferior to each other. And so when we think about high-risk stage 2s and stage 3s and adding that addition of oxaloplatin to 5-FU backbones, the Mosaic trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004, is really the big um, sentimental trial that looked at this. What they did is they compared full FOX versus bolus 5-FU in high-risk stage 2s and all stage 3s. And what they saw is that there was an improvement of disease-free survival with the addition of oxaloplatin. The absolute reduction was 7.5% in the stage 3 group and 7.2% risk reduction in the high-risk stage 2s. Low-risk stage 2s really didn't see much benefit of the addition of oxaloplatin. In the overall survival data of the Mosaic trial, they saw no change in stage 2 with the addition of oxaloplatin, but the addition of oxaloplatin did add benefit in the stage 3 group. 
This isn't without risk and this isn't without side effects. So we all know that oxaliplatin leads to neuropathy when given repetitively. And so adding in the oxaliplatin, yes, we got better disease-free survival and overall survival, but we also got more neuropathy. The Mosaic trials also extrapolated that we can drop oxaliplatin in elderly patients defined as older than 70 years to reduce the toxicity of neuropathy without losing any of the benefits of adjuvant chemo. Yeah, that's extremely high yield. Um, so knowing that age cutoff for the oxaliplatin. And so has anyone ever looked at less than six months of chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting? Yeah. So this is our newish trial, and this is the IDEA trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. What they looked at is KPOX or Fulfox. It was dealer's choice, and they compared three months versus six months in the adjuvant setting. This was a big trial. They pulled over 12,000 stage 3 colon cancer patients. It was geared to be a non-inferiority trial, so the goal was to try to reduce toxicity but also keep the benefits of chemo. So could we give a shorter period of chemo and still get the benefits and have less toxicity? What we saw in the results, not surprising, is that there was decreased neuropathy with three months versus six months. What we also saw is that the disease-free survival, when you lumped together KPOX and Fulfox together and compared three months versus six months, it was 74.6% um, for three months and 75.5% for six months. So really it didn't prove there was a non-inferiority between three months and six months of chemo. When the researchers then divided the chemotherapy regimens and they looked at KPOX three months versus six months, there was a clear non-inferiority between the two durations. So KPOX for three months sounds pretty good. Fulfox then was also looked at three months versus six months, and three months was inferior than six months. So Fulfox, you got to give all six months of it. The overall survival between the groups of three months versus six months were very similar. So what's the bottom line for the IDEA trial results? Yeah. So the big thing is, and this is in the NCCN guidelines and will be tested for you guys, is that in a low-risk stage 3, so that is T1 through T3, N1, you can give them KPOX for three months. In a high-risk stage 3, so that is the T4s, that deeper invasion of that colon cancer tumor, or if they're N2, so more lymph nodes involved, you need a six-month regimen, whether that's KPOX or Fulfox, that's dealer's choice. And so you covered a lot of really important trials. Can you summarize the overall recommendation on adjuvant therapy based on all these trials? Yeah. So I'll start with stage threes because I, I actually think they're easier than stage twos. Um, so if you have a resected stage three colon cancer patient, if they are low to intermediate risk, so not T4, not N2, you can give them three months of KPOX or six months of Fulfox. If you have a higher risk stage three, so those include the T4s and the N2s, you got to give them six months of chemo. Whether that's Fulfox or KPOX, perfectly fine, but that's what you should do. In the stage two setting, if someone is deficient in mismatch repair enzymes, they're considered low risk and you don't give them adjuvant therapy. If someone is mismatch repair proficient, you can look at 
they're high risk. So if they're a high risk stage two, you can consider giving them 5-FU or capecitabine alone or three months of KPOX. If they do not have any high risk factors, have the conversation about what is adjuvant chemotherapy, but most likely they won't need or benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah, that's really important. And I think that was a great review. Um, I definitely remember getting multiple questions on, for example, they'll say tumor that invades muscularis propria, no lymph nodes, or they'll add lymph nodes, and they'll ask you based on the risk features whether to recommend chemo. So definitely make sure you commit this to memory. And so when we do survey patients, um, when they're done their surgery and if indicated their chemo, um, what does the surveillance include? Yeah. So per our NCCN guidelines, stage one colon cancers, which I did not give enough or a lot of attention to because they don't need chemo ever. What we do after their surgery is colonoscopy a year after the surgery. If they have adenomas, repeat in a year. If no adenomas, repeat in three years and then five years. Um, one thing to note is that even though they were stage one and they were caught very early, they are more likely than the general population to develop a second colon cancer. So they still need to be watched very closely and have discussions of, you know, lifestyle risk modifications to reduce a second colon cancer from popping up and low threshold to colonoscopy these patients with any symptoms. In stage twos and threes, again, they also need a colonoscopy one year after their surgery. In addition to that, they usually get history and physicals as well as labs, including a CEA, every three to six months for the first two years, and then spaced out to every six years to year five or six months to year five. You can also add in CT abdomen pelvis every six to 12 months. Generally, this is more towards the 12 months, but you know, it's category B, I think, um, for every six months to year five. And I think one big thing that we won't talk about here, but I think will be changing the landscape of surveillance for colon cancer is circulating tumor DNA. This is up and coming. I do believe this is going to change our surveillance you know, landscape in the near future, even within the next year or so. So expect to hear more about this, and we'll hopefully do an own, our own dedicated podcast just about circulating tumor DNA in colon cancers. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the overview, Sam, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, and please feel free to reach out to us with any corrections or comments on our Instagram, 2OncDocs, and we'll be covering metastatic colorectal cancer um, in a separate episode, so tune in for that as well. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, guys.